Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Come with hearts and voices, boys will sing a brand new song. Sing it with a spirit that will thrill the mighty throng. Sing it till the millions hear and send the news along. While we go marching to victory. Hurrah, hurrah, McKinley is the man. Hurrah, hurrah, gold will lead the van. Then we will shout protection over all this glorious land. Marching with McKinley to victory. Everybody now, hurrah, hurrah. Come on, you know this song. Maybe not. <laughs> it's going to be, it's an earworm, though. It's going to be stuck in your head all day. Um, <laughs> so the subject today, which is political merchandise, is really a subject that is near and dear to my heart as somebody who's covered politics for a really long time. But, you know, the other thing is you think you know everything about something, and it turns out you barely know anything, even under your own roof. So I learned this morning... So I'll just back up and say that many of you who, who listen to the show know that Bill Curry uh, was twice the Democratic nominee for governor here in Connecticut. Um, before that, he – no, in between those two things, I don't know, he ran for and was elected comptroller. Uh, and um, apparently – well, I'll just – I should say another thing about political merchandise, which is it exists in lots of different forms and lots of different levels. There's the kind of uh, political merchandise that you would aim at the cognoscenti, the people who were already pretty well versed in stuff, who needed they need to be inveigled somehow. They need to be, you know, just their their antennae need to be glowing somehow. Uh, that's very different from probably the political merchandise you would direct at the general electorate. So there's something called the Jefferson Jackson Bailey dinner here in Connecticut. It's just the version of the Democratic state dinner that takes place in every single state uh, in America. And our Republican dinner here is the Prescott-Bush dinner. I don't know what they call it anywhere else. But when you're at the Jackson-Jefferson Bailey dinner, I think it was just the Jackson-Jefferson dinner at that time, um, he was running for uh, governor. And at every place setting at the dinner, there was a little uh, jar of curry powder. His name is Bill Curry, mind you. Uh, and, uh, and there was a label that said, Connecticut is cooking with curry. Um, and that the person with whom I share a life, she who shall not be named but must be obeyed, uh, said, told me today that she had to drive to New York and buy like a 40-pound bag of curry powder at some spice market in the meatpacking district or something and then <laughs> drive it back home to Connecticut, at which point her car smelled like curry for – which is not a bad way for something to smell, but it was for months according to her. All right, so enough storytelling. Uh, we have terrific guests for you today, uh, and including uh, our first guest, Claire Jeffrey, who's actually joining us for the second time. Claire Jerry is a curator of political history uh, for the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, and Claire Jerry joined us for our bumper sticker show. Uh, she's with us today. Uh, first of all, welcome back. I'm delighted to be here, Colin. Thank you so much. And so we should talk a little bit about um, what the what the meaning of political merch, political merchandise is, at least within the context of the Smithsonian. What does the Smithsonian con uh, consider to be 
merchandise worthy of the name um, or unworthy of some better name and worth collecting? How do you decide? That's a really great question. Merchandise is a really broad word. And I think that today we tend to associate merchandise with something that has a for-profit attachment to it. And that's not exactly what we collect. Uh, We certainly do collect things that were sold to make a profit or to raise money for a campaign. But we also collect things that were given away for free. We collect things that were made by individuals to reflect their own. They make their own sign. They make their own uh, button to wear. So we collect the gamut of what would broadly be considered merchandising. We tend to call it more novelties or campaign gimmicks or artifacts rather than merchandising. But I think it all is really talking about the same thing. Yeah, we used to have here in Hartford the Museum of American Political Life or the American Museum of Political Life or something like that. And I remember going there with an antiquities dealer named Glenn Horowitz and going to the back and there were all these drawers that they had that had like these like metal buttons, right, that were really from the 18th century. That's how far back some of this goes. But my sense is that's more of a commemorative kind of thing a lot of the time as opposed to an enthusiasm-building um, you know, piece of swag. Um, in the earliest days, uh, we do trace our button collection back to George Washington's inauguration, but those were commemorative souvenirs. You're right. Washington didn't have to campaign in any of the ways we think of campaigning being true today. That really starts to kick off in the 1820s, really takes a life of its own with the log cabin and hard cider campaign of 1840. And then I loved your opening song from McKinley because my heart's in the 1896 election, um, which is where the merchandise that we think of today really takes off because technology has changed. We have celluloid, we have plastic, we have ways to produce things. So in the earliest days, it was more of a souvenir commemorative because we didn't have campaigns the way we have them now. Right. So, yeah, we picked that song for exactly that reason. Um, I, I should warn people, we are about to discuss Soap Babies, which you may find... I love <laughs> But other, other people may find them frightening or alarming, just so you know. Soap Babies are... So... <laughs> So we have to talk about soap babies. There, there are these these things in your collection that they're made out of soap, and they're they're images, they're babies, but they have something to do with both McKinley and William William Jennings Bryan. Can you can you explain soap babies to us, please? They were produced um, not by the campaigns themselves, but they were produced by vendors, by soap companies, some of which still exist today. And they were little, they're about four inches long. The babies are naked. They're made out of soap. And they came both in boxes that had messages on them and then with little tags around their necks that said things like, my dad's for the gold standard. My papa will vote for silver. Where are you? So they were really produced to promote economic policy, because as I like to say, nothing says economic policy like four-inch naked baby made out of soap. Um, They were very creepy. Um, They were never produced again. Uh, Lots of things from that election look just like campaign buttons today with different names. But the soap babies weren't terribly popular with voters because they looked a little bit like babies in coffins. um, And so they didn't really catch on. But they were an amazing thing, I think, from that election. And my personal theory is it has more to do with the soap manufacturers trying to show what they could do with soap than it had anything to do with economics. <laughs> it was policy. a soap manufacturer flex. And it all makes sense now. The other reason they were not popular was at night they would wake up and eat your dreams while you slept. Um, so no soap babies in the house. But that campaign also, I don't know if it's the first instance, but it is an instance of kind of negative merch, opposition merch, other guy merch, I think you might call it. For example, there's a five-inch wide Brian Dollar, William Jennings, Brian Dollar. Say something about that. 
Um, I don't think it's the first time. Um, we've had negative messaging in campaigns um, all the way back to Adams and Jefferson um, in 1800. But yes, you're trying to point out how your policy is better than the other. So this whole economic thing had to do with what was it going to do to prices for you and what was your money going to be worth? And so they were trying to show by producing this giant, it's, yeah, it's about five inches across. We have one in the collection. Um, so see, your money's not going to go as far. It's not going to be as good for you. Um, so yeah, it, uh, but I would say it goes back further than that. The whole 1840 hard cider campaign was really a fight between William uh, Martin Van Buren trying to accuse William Henry Harrison of being somebody who just wanted to live in a log cabin and drink hard cider. He actually was a very well-to-do person, was not born in a log cabin. He said, this is great. I'm going to use this to market myself to my, my supporters. And then they made fun of Martin Van Buren for drinking champagne, which he apparently didn't really do either. Can I, I, I have to ask you, since you mentioned Van Buren, uh, I'm about to reveal how much I combed through your collection today, but there are these things called pull cards, and I wasn't quite sure I understood what a pull card is or was. Um, they are um, little paper cards with a tab on it. We, um, you've probably seen them in like children's books mm. where you pull a tab and a different picture shows up. Oh, yeah, and that's right, what yeah. happens. So it's, it looks like it's a smiling picture of Van Buren. But when you pull the tab, it shows him with this very terrible face and shows you he's drinking champagne and he's not really one of you. Um, so it was a, a simultaneously a campaign thing, but also a little bit of a game. It's, it also is very creepy and frightening. I mean, yes. It, it, yes. it is disturbing. Um, and, and so while we're on your collection, I have to ask about one more thing. You appear to have a mug promoting the candidacy of James Monroe in which his name is spelled M-U-N. Can, can you explain this? Um, uh, the short answer is no. I'm really our 20th century person. Um, but I, the spelling was not really standardized in the country at that time. And so I'm going to guess that that has to do with that. Yeah. It just, it just an odd, I mean, I want that mug much more than I want a mug where his name is spelled right. Uh, so I'm probably not going to do that. So, so now you have to make decisions during a campaign about what you're going to collect. We should say maybe another thing that's important here is that Things are not made quite as sturdily these days. They're not spoons, you know, or metal things. They're often made out of, as you said, you know, more 20th century kinds of materials. But you have to make decisions about what gets collected and what doesn't get collected. Can you say a little bit about that, like what your criteria would be? Sure, um, especially when we go into the field during a campaign, which we're getting ready to do here very shortly. We are keeping in mind both what's sort of historically consistent. What are we seeing in a campaign that reminds us of things that we've collected before? And then are we seeing something that's new or distinctive that might someday speak to this campaign or something that will really capture, say the slogan of a particular candidate or an issue that's really relevant in that. And so we're trying to both keep our eye on the past and on the present moment while looking ahead to what will people need to know about this campaign in the future. And because we study these all the time, um, we, I would say we guess pretty well most of the time, but sometimes, you know, 50 years from now, one of my successors may be saying, gosh, we really need to go back and collect X because we didn't get it then. We do a lot of real-time collecting. We also rely very heavily on donors. Uh, as you said, these things are made out of uh, ephemeral materials, and so they wind up in a lot of people's junk drawers. And we rely on people saying, hey, I just cleaned out my grandparents' house and I found these items from the, you know, the 1924 election. Are you interested? And so we're also looking to see what did we miss back then when we weren't collecting in the field and what are we seeing now? 
Yeah, they also wind up on eBay and Etsy. Um, and I mean, that you'd probably rather have the one that's in somebody's junk drawer that they're not going to charge you anything for. Um, and there are dealers in this stuff. I discovered today on somebody's website that it was possible to own, and I immediately wanted to, a button that said Nurses for Gephardt. Um, I, like, I almost have to have that button, Nurses for Gephardt. But that brings up the issue of relevancy. So is the Smithsonian, for example... Not to single him out in any way, but is the Smithsonian interested in Doug Burkham, Burkham merch? I mean, there's a lot of, interestingly, Doug Burkham merch. Doug Burkham, for those of you listening, is the governor of North Dakota or South Dakota or Central Dakota, he's, he's something like that. And he was running uh, for seeking the nomination for a while. And he, a lot of his merchandise said, Doug who? Question mark, which is kind of funny. But I don't know. Smithsonian, I, I'm, I'm assuming you don't really have room for a lot of obscurities and also rands. Well, we try to tell the history of a campaign in its entirety. Mm. So we do look at um, where did the campaign start? Who were the candidates who were in at what point? And you're right. There will not be as much material in our collection from people who were did not stay in for the whole primary season or didn't get the ultimate nomination. We'll certainly have more material for the major party candidates. But no, we want to reflect who was in, um, particularly in any way that they might have influenced how the campaign moved forward. Sometimes individuals over time, there have you know, been a lot of people running in the last several cycles, and sometimes they're maybe a single issue person, or they really affect the discourse of the campaign going forward. And so we do try to represent who was there at the beginning, and then obviously more material for who's there at the end. Yeah, I, I've got a tip for you, which is 2016 um, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz bobbleheads are a half price on the site that sells them. I can get them for 10 bucks. Um, so um, also there's something there's a Martin O'Malley apron, which, which I also somewhat covet from the 2016 cycle. Uh, but you should say a little bit about I mean, we can't have any conversations anymore without talking about Trump, because to a certain degree, he rewrote the D- DNA of this stuff, too, although the use of his mugshot, it turns out, is not maybe quite as radical as I had initially thought. But just Trump, he just everything about Trump is different, including merch, right? Um, you know, I have to be careful um, yeah. talking about the contemporary campaign because yeah. we are historians here. Yeah. Um, but yes, that point about um, somebody running using um, an image of incarceration, any type. Um, Eugene Debs was the socialist candidate in 1920. It was the fifth time he ran for president. He actually did pretty well for a third party candidate. And in 1920, he had been incarcerated by um, President Wilson for speaking out against the draft in World War One. And there were campaign buttons for him that said, vote for convict number 9653, um, and had a picture of him on it. And he actually um, polled almost a million votes in that election, about 3% of the of it. So um, people are looking for you know what makes them stand out in a campaign. So when you said before that sometimes you get the wrong thing or you don't, don't, don't get a certain thing, you have to go looking for it later, is it because... I mean, sometimes it's hard to sort of figure out when we talk to Hunter Schwarz in just a second here, we'll be talking about this, that maybe one thing that they tried didn't work as well as it seemed it might and something else was more successful. Is that one of the things that that sends you back out into the field looking for something a few years after a campaign is closed? Sometimes. And because we get so many things from uh, donors, what's always interesting to me is when the person who's coming forward with their material is somebody who maybe was active in politics for a number of years. And so they can sort of give us that extra bit of information about, okay, you were living in the campaign. Why did this speak to you? Why is this the thing that you kept? Um, You know, I work with people who are talking about 
this was my grandparents, but I remember my grandparents talking about this campaign. And so we're looking for that connection because people who lived it and worked it will sometimes have a different perspective than we have, um, you know, looking at it in the past. The other part of this, and we'll be talking about uh, about this with Hunter as well, but um, I'd love your insight into kind of the psychology of merch. Like, why do people want it? I know why candidates want you to want it, um, but why do people want it? Do I mean, obviously, and we won't talk about Trump, but I mean, I'll just say the MAGA hat just turned into kind of a thing, and you sort of had to have it if you were a certain kind of person. Uh, but just generally speaking, what's the, what is the psychological end of the 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 purchaser or obtainer of merch? I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them has to do, people I think want to feel really personally engaged with their candidate, with a particular race. And this is a way to do that because very few of us actually encounter um, the candidates in person, right? They don't come to our town, uh, maybe our state's not in play, but we wanna feel engaged. And this is a way to do that. Um, it's a way of personal expression and also a way to feel like, Hey, I contributed. I'm I'm helping spread the word. I'm making sure that my friends and neighbors know this that I support this particular person. And there's some really good communication um, research out there that suggests that if you can get me to put a sign in my yard or a bumper sticker on my car or a button on my coat, I'm much more likely to then convert into an actual voter. And so it's it's sort of both of us. I want to be involved and you want to make sure not so much that I convince my neighbor to vote for you, you want to make sure I cast my ballot. And so we're both looking toward that end game, that participation, feeling connected. I don't know whether we said this, but before we, we wrap here, I think it's worth noting that, yes, uh, the earliest, earliest, earliest merch might be it might have been commemorative. Then it was a way of getting a message across and building enthusiasm. And presumably the campaigns just put this stuff out and hoped people wanted it. But now any campaign website that you go on to, including Doug Burgum, has a little clickable tab that says shop. Um, this is now a moneymaker uh, for campaigns as much as it is an enthusiasm builder. But just give me your take on that. You know, I think that's true. And I, I think that we've seen a little bit of a change. This merchandise often used to be available, say, at a local headquarters. And so it was a way of getting you into the headquarters, again, getting you engaged. Maybe you came in to get the bumper sticker, but then you got more involved somehow. Um how much of this is pandemic related? How much of this is just the rise of social media? But we are a culture that's very engaged electronically. And so in some ways, I think those online merchandise opportunities have taken a little bit of the place of maybe what was a more local outreach at one time. There's an ebb and flow on that. There have always been vendors. There have always been the official, unofficial kinds of merchandise. But we, we certainly, you're right, we're certainly seeing a real uptick in that online merchandising still gives us a way to feel involved, but maybe not quite as involved at the local personal level when I had to actually walk into the headquarters to get my button. That's a great point. Uh, Claire Jerry, uh, curator of political history for the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And we are going to take a little break. We're going to talk a lot more about the psychology of political merchandise and whether or not it is effective and when it is effective, why that might be. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I actually just want to play this swinging tune in its entirety. That's Connie Francis, by the way, who's a you know, very legit singer of the era. All right, so joining us now is the aforementioned Hunter Schwarz, a political journalist and founder and curator of the visual politics newsletter Yellow. I can aver that his work is taught at Yale University because I teach it uh, at Yale University. I'm doing my uh, syllabus for the term that starts in a couple of weeks, and there's already a link to Yellow, which, by the way, is spelled like hello, Y-E-L-L-O. Um, so I'm kind of a fanboy, Hunter Schwartz. It's exciting to talk to you. Uh, welcome to our oh, show. Thank you. Thank so, you. So we played Nixon's The One as a little bit of a lead-in for you because I know that you have a non-ideological admiration for the Nixon campaign and the way that it handled branding and it's all, all the things that go into branding. So say some more about that. Yeah, I mean – uh, you look at uh, Nixon, someone who ran presidential races many times as a presidential and vice presidential candidate. And, you know, you really see in his later races, his campaign was very methodical about its branding, um, just using the same typeface, Futura, uh, very modern looking brand, very cohesive brand. And yeah, it's just it's, it's interesting to kind of watch how he he built that. Um, uh, into his winning campaigns. And then you kind of see the effects in the years after, uh, kind of post-Watergate, you see campaigns kind of uh, move away from that style that he popularized. And, and that just simply because of an, an aversion to anything that had the faintest whiff of Nixon and Watergate? Is that why? Yeah. And you really see that in, uh, in, in presidential branding. When candidates do well, a lot of um, kind of their visual aesthetic, you see it kind of filter down to other races. And so for, for that Nixon example, you know, you see uh, Carter 76, Reagan in 80, and they both uh, use branding that's very different from uh, from that Nixon brand. And, and today you see that a lot with, with politicians like Obama and Trump and uh, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, their branding kind of permeates throughout politics. 
Um, you know, one thing that has changed, I mean, it hasn't totally changed, but the, the paradigm for a long time was you had a campaign manager or general contractor management company, and they farmed out some work, and you hired design firms, and you hired branding firms, and you marketing people, and you worked out all this. And that hasn't stopped happening. But it seems to me that because you can turn products around very quickly, and also because the news cycle is very short these days, I see stuff where it's just clear that they didn't know they were going to have to make this product. I'll give you two examples, then have you react. One of them was it came out in, in some of the January 6th stuff that Trump had referred to Mike Pence as, or maybe even told him he was too honest. Uh, and so the Pence campaign quickly flipped that over. They had hats and shirts and stuff like that coming out that said too honest. Uh, and... I, I think the even bigger, very organic one is Dark Brandon. And Dark Brandon is not something that the Biden campaign team thought up, but there are Dark Brandon yard signs and stickers and beer cozies and tote bags and I don't know what else. Um, could say a little bit about that because this is like you have to sort of have your antennae up instead of trying to think of something that you're going to push out into the public. Yeah, definitely. It's like you need you need kind of that core branding. Um, but you need to be able to react to the news as it, ha- as it happens because those can be major fundraising moments. Um, you know, when something happens in the news and your your followers are engaged and you can kind of hit them with, hey, we have this special edition merch. We're just rolling out, pegged to the news. Uh, that can re- that can do really well. I know that the Clinton campaign in 2016, they made a, a woman card based on a comment that Trump had said. And it was it was after two days after that they made this card, they sold it, it became a big thing that they uh, they used in a lot of their advertising and branding. And so, yeah, being able to react can uh, can make a big difference. Um, yeah. And I mean, Dark Brandon is fascinating, too, because there's just no way that anybody sitting in a, uh, you know, a meeting room in Brooklyn is going to come up with this idea. <laughs> oh, let's invent Dark Brandon and there'll be red rays shooting out of his eyes and stuff. But it because it, it but it tells a story they probably thought they couldn't even dare to try to tell about Joe Biden, that he was like this sort of mythically powerful being or something. Um, and then you got to pounce on it. So you recently focused on, I didn't even know this was a thing, on Christmas merch, political campaign Christmas merch. Tell us a little bit about what you what your perceptions were. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting kind of with the, with the campaign cycle, you get one shot to do Christmas because by next Christmas, the election will be over. Um, and I, I saw at the, at the presidential level, uh, the Trump campaign put out wrapping paper. They had a stocking with his mugshot on it. There was um, uh, uh, the, the the Biden campaign put out several items. Nikki Haley's campaign did. I just and, and I think what what I what I see about this Christmas merch is because it is kind of a limited edition thing. Um, the campaigns that are able to put out Christmas items, it usually feels like it's kind of a sign of they have momentum just because they have the staff and the foresight to do something. Um, like this. Uh, the DeSantis campaign originally, when I did that story, they didn't have anything, but they've since added some alligator wrapping paper. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a way to, uh, to do something pegged to the holidays and you can give a gift too. I think the alligator wrapping paper links back to some branding they've tried to do. And I, I think it started maybe with Casey DeSantis wearing a leather jacket with an alligator on the back, superimposed over a map of Florida with the words, where woke goes to die. Uh, and that went a little viral. Uh, and and it, it seems as though, I, I don't know how successfully, uh, particularly because it's like all black and white stuff that they do when they're not doing Christmas stuff. I don't know how successfully the DeSantis campaign exploited that. But that seemed to be 
kind of a weird message that they were putting out. Yeah, the DeSantis campaign seemed to play up a lot of his Florida roots. That's kind of a big part of his uh, of his messaging. You know, I'll be able to do for the U.S. what I did for Florida. And so being able to, I found a lot of times state level politicians find ways to kind of play up their state and kind of promote uh, uh, pride in their state as part of their campaign. Um, there's been a rebranding of Joe Biden, uh, of Biden and Harris, I think you could say. Uh, I know that you've written about that. Um, obviously, they're kind of in need of a reband- rebranding. You look at the polling numbers and they don't even seem to line up very well with the actual performance of the administration. So talk a little bit about what they did, what you saw in that. Yeah. So the the challenge when you're rebranding for a reelect is you really you want to keep it familiar um, because I think you can think about the visual rhetoric of a campaign similar to the spoken rhetoric. You know, when when uh, when Joe Biden comes out, you're going to hear you want to hear a lot of the same things that you're familiar uh, from hearing. I mean, you want to see a similar look as well, but you want to update it for the times. And so they 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 turned the the three red stripes in the the E uh, to kind of a waving thing and gave it some animation. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really about subtlety. It's about, it's about keeping what's familiar, but adding enough to it that it kind of feels relevant and with the times and forward thinking. Um, one thing I've noticed they've done a lot of is handwriting. Uh, so just kind of having this human touch, kind of a, a, a note from the president, I think it kind of elevates it. They're able to elevate their brand and kind of, uh, you know, with, with the, the power of incumbency to kind of have this, this parchment background with this red writing on it, they use it quite a bit. Yeah, so you'd have a little yeah, piece of something that looks like parchment, and it's in handwriting. It says, together we can finish the job, and you've got pictures of Biden and Harris there. So I am the least visually oriented person in the world. Like, I miss everything. Uh, that's why I have to read yellow whenever it comes out. <laughs> I, I, but I think I might have noticed something. You can feel free to poo-poo what I'm mm-hmm. about to say. But they rebranded their logo a little bit, and so you've got um, – Biden is now spelled B-I-D. And then there's in place of an E, there is what looks to me like three red stacked, the diacritical mark tilde from Spanish. Uh, There are these little three little wavy lines. Uh, And I wondered if that might be um, sort of a subliminal message to to Latino voters that that the E looks like three tildes, one on top of each other. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe. To me, it kind of gives it some motion. And I feel like what we see a lot with with uh, with incumbent presidents running for re-election is you you want to show action, you want to show that you're getting the job done. So I, I feel like kind of by adding motion to that, they're able to. It's just kind of like a subtle visual reminder of that, and just kind of a way to make the logo look new. Yeah, and actually, Lily Tyson is telling me she thinks it's supposed to look like a, a sort of waving flag too, which makes total sense. But the reason that it could be all of those things, Hunter, is because no mood boards were used in the making of this rebrand. As you reported to us, uh, the creative director for the Biden campaign, Robin Kanner, said uh, she uses worlds. She designs for worlds instead of for mood boards. A mood board is an idea, she said. A world is a place that triggers all my senses. I often don't know what people in jobs like that mean when they are talking, but I assume you do. What, what is she saying? Yeah, well, I, I think as we head into the 2024 election, like what is different about this election versus past elections is it just feels like all of these platforms that campaigns are used to communicating on are fracturing. People are spending their time on different places. Uh, you know, we're no longer in a, a three a three channels on TV kind of a world. And so when, when you're designing for a campaign, 
the professionals that I've talked to, it's really about how it's, it's about how do you make a coherent uh, visual look that matches up with the candidate and the candidate's message? And how do you make that feel coherent, no matter whether someone's seeing it on a mailer or in a campaign ad or on a piece of merchandise or, you know, a different social media platform. And so I feel like when, when Robin's talking about world building there, it's really like it's, it's, it's building kind of the, the Biden Harris 2024 world. Like, what does that look like when you interact with it on so many different platforms and in so many different places? Yeah, no, that that makes total sense now that you've explained it. So we I mean, we have to talk about the MAGA hat, which I think is arguably maybe the most successful piece of political merch that I can think of, just in the sense that, A, the candidate wore it all the time because Trump has no sense of personal dignity. He would wear it almost under any circumstances. We're lucky he didn't wear it to G7 summits. Maybe he did. But um, there was sort of that. But it kind of became like shirt and shoes for for Trump supporters. You really had to put your MAGA hat on when you left the house. I don't think I've ever seen a piece of merch that was so ubiquitous and so universally embraced by the constituency. But I'd love to hear the Hunter Schwartz take uh, on that. Yeah, well, I think think it really comes down to, uh, it's a piece of merch that is meant to be displayed. It's meant to be public. you know, kind of talking about the the psychology of why why are people interested in this kind of stuff? It's it's interesting when I when I've talked to political professionals in the UK about mer- about merch, it's very different. Um, they say they have more luck with tea towels uh, as opposed to yard signs and T-shirts. It's like it's politics is it's a much more personal thing. It's something inside your home, and uh, you know the MAGA hat's very opposite of that. It's it's meant to be worn. It's meant to be seen, and um, yeah, I, I think I think it's also interesting. Just like what is what does the MAGA hat mean in 2016 versus 2020 versus 2024? I don't really know the answer to that. Are people going to be more willing to show off their support for Trump? Less. I mean, I'm sure a lot of voters will feel differently about that. But yeah, I mean, a very successful uh, piece of merchandise. How much of an effect do you think all of this stuff has ultimately on either outcomes or, or perceptions? In other words, a lot of time and energy is invested in visual signatures and imagery and branding and also merch. I mean, you kind of have to do it. You can't not do it. Um, but do we know, do you have any real sense of how efficacious it really is? I mean, I think it's just part of the whole the whole picture. Like it's it's about it's about creating a visual brand that is consistent, that is uh, that kind of matches who the candidate is. And when you look at it, you're like, yeah, that feels like that candidate. And I, I just think it's part of part of the wider the wider campaign strategy. It's just like like if if things look uh, look a similar way and they sound a similar way and it presents a message that the voters want, I think it can it can be really helpful. Yeah, I loved what you said before too about the thing that's inside your house. Um, it's coming from inside your house. But for example, I think I have in, in our kitchen, I think we have two jar openers uh, related to campaigns. One of them was from Sam Gadenson, who was a congressman from Connecticut for many terms. And one of them is from a guy named Dan Papermaster, who ran unsuccessfully for Congress. And the great thing about a jar opener is it's just a piece of rubber, a circular piece of rubber that you can put something on. But it is something you go and reach for when you've got a problem. The jar won't open. Maybe this will help you grip it better. So to your point, you're actually giving people something that they might perceive as helpful, which might be an interesting subliminal message about the candidate. 
Yeah, you know, in, in fact, the Republicans post Watergate, they once ran a national ad campaign just trying to improve the image of congressional Republicans. And one of the things they offered was like an atlas. It was like right in for this atlas. And so, I mean, yeah, I think there's something there. There's something there to to giving something that's useful versus something that's meant to be meant to be worn publicly. Um, yeah, it, it kind of says something about what you're hoping uh, people will view that uh, view about that candidate. I just have to tell you the story because I have no one else to tell it to. But quite a few cycles ago, I was at one of those Jefferson Jackson Bailey dinners. And one of the tchotchkes was uh, from a candidate named George Jepson, who was eventually elected attorney general in that cycle. But it was a potholder. And then like years later, when I mentioned it, I said that it said on it, you won't get burned with Jepson. Which and then he got <laughs> he called me up and said, it doesn't say that. It's just ready to serve. And I said, like, mine isn't way better than that. You know, like, you won't get burned with Jepson on a potholder. But once again, it is that thing. It's a thing that you have that you're not trying to get rid of. A lot of merch that you get handed, you know, if it's a button or something like that, it's going to go in a drawer and it's never coming out again. So that's the other thing, to have something like that. I mean, the MAGA hat works that way a little bit, too. But to having something that you have to sort of tote around or use or something like that, it just keeps it kind of top of mind for a while anyway. Yeah, it's useful. Um, so another problem that they have, I don't know how much you've delved into this, but you know, you <laughs> you can't if you're if you're running at a pretty high level, you can't have merch that's made in China or any other place that's not the United States. Uh, Obama tried to get a union produced American made basketball uh, that turns out to be very very difficult. Romney um, had the same problem. Uh, and they were uh, they were trying to make a toy version of their campaign bus and found out there were no American companies that do that. Um, and Obama bought all of the white union-made coffee mugs to satisfy the demand for one of its bestsellers, a mug with Obama's newly released birth certificate. And that would have been in 2012, I assume. So th- that's an interesting challenge. You've got a country that has less and less manufacturing. And when you go looking for merch, it turns out, you know, you've got a you got a problem if if companies don't make anything anymore. Yeah, you, the last thing you want is is campaign merch that says "Made in China." That's <laughs> <laughs> not going to fly. Um, yeah, and it, yeah, that that's adding to the cost um, of a lot of this merchandise. Shipping is adding quite a bit to the cost as well. So, last question: As this campaign starts to warm up in 2024, and you don't have a George Jepson potholder to pick it up with, um, what are you looking at? What are you looking for? What do what you you'll have your own set of uh, of Hunter Schwarz yellow goggles on? What are the What are you going to look for? What do you think cam- candidates need to do with branding and merch and, and this whole visual signature world to help themselves? Um, I think it's about making an identity that speaks to that candidate um that you look at it and you're like yes there's there's kind of magic there it's like that looks like what what i'm expecting from this candidate it's consistent um and i'm really curious about how candidates adapt to kind of this this post social media world when, where things are more fractured uh what what avenues do they find are the most successful for reaching people are there former avenues of persuasion that are less effective than they used to be um, yeah, I'm just I'm looking for how campaigns adapt to kind of the realities of 2024. One of the campaigns that will be interesting in various kind of queasy making ways is the campaign of RFK Jr. Um, and that's I was looking at his merch today, and it's interesting because he can't really run exactly as a Kennedy in the traditional sense of the Kennedy because he believes so many things that 
none of the rest of his family believes. But as you look at him and maybe shifting out of being a Democratic candidate and into an independent candidate, do you see things happening already? Yeah, he he changed uh, a lot of his uh, the slogans on his website and in his campaign to move away from the Democratic Party and just identify as an American, identify as an independent. Um, the thing that was most interesting to me was after he announced he was running as an independent and did a rebrand, he had a, a camo baseball hat in his shop, mm-hmm. which you know, just kind of like you see that and you're like, oh, he is definitely going to be reaching out more to rural conservative voters than I think he was previously doing when he was running as a Democrat. So it's like you kind of see you see things sometimes in merch that um, it just kind of shows you what who, who the campaign is trying to target what kind of items they think the voters are going to be interested in. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things have a political slant to them, and I think a, a camo duck hunting kind of hat would would be in that category. Um, so, yeah, the last thing, uh, recently you wrote about the impact of inflation on campaign merch. And what was kind of interesting was the person who's been blamed for inflation uh, in this campaign had less inflationary campaign merchandise than the person doing the blaming. But say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I just it, it's it's the, the thing that is nice about having two candidates who've run against each other before is you have kind of some similar sets of uh, information to to look at. And so, yeah, a lot of campaign items, they have gotten more expensive um, in the past four years. A MAGA hat used to be thirty dollars. Now it's forty dollars. Um, but there are there are some examples of deflation like Trump mugs I found are cheaper than they used to be. And then on the Biden uh, side, bumper stickers are cheaper. Yard signs are cheaper. Um, so yeah, it's just it's it's interesting being able to compare uh, kind of directly with with four years ago, where merch is at. Um, Hunter Schwarz is. Uh, it's great talking to you. The uh, Substack newsletter is yellow. Y e l l o no w. People should sign up for it if you're ever in New Haven on a Tuesday this spring. Uh, get in touch. I'd love to have you come visit my class. Uh, but great to talk to you today. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to somebody who makes T-shirts that politicians want themselves to wear. Our technical producer today is Kat Pastor. Senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, who is too honest, but I don't think she wants a Mike Pence hat. I would get her one to help him retire his dad, <laughs> but uh, she's also the producer of this particular episode. Uh, joining us now is uh, somebody who makes uh, T-shirts that politicians want to wear, even though they didn't order the T-shirts. That's Mike Draper, the founder and owner of the famous T-shirt maker Raygun. Welcome to our conversation. Yeah, greetings from Des Moines, Iowa, caucus ground zero. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, what I just said is true, right? Sometimes you make a T-shirt not because, you know, the Buttigieg campaign hired you to do it or something, uh, but then they want, somebody wants, somebody who's an actual politician wants to wear that T-shirt. Yes. So we are kind of in the <clears throat> merch adjacent category, and we've only gotten to be this way because our original store is about a block from here, was right across the street from Obama's headquarters in 2008. So we would get requests for just general caucus merchandise. So rock out with your caucus out was our main shirt from 2008. And then we started making shirts kind of about the candidates. So we would do something maybe about Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Bernie. 
And the campaigns would start purchasing some of these shirts and they would get noticed enough on social media that then the candidates themselves would come and pose with the shirt that they didn't either design <laughs> or pay for. So it becomes this kind of like bizarre circular, you know, you're like part of the different, um, like you're just kind of part of the different world and working on product at the same time. One of the things you also do is kind of try to guess out uh, or tease out the, the psychographics of various kinds of potential voting blocks. Uh, I would probably buy from you for Lily Tyson, my producer, your T-shirt that says filthy liberal book hugger. Uh, do, do you still have that one? <laughs> oh, do we ever? Yeah. The uh, yeah, the general stuff is moving better this year than the candidate stuff. And kind of to your point about how merchandise has changed you know, a lot of this is really only possible screen printing hasn't changed much over the last you know 200 years but it is the technology of the internet has made speed more important than ever and weirdly enough product is almost like a meme you can purchase and it's so ephemeral that most of what you're going to sell might be in that first 24 hours and so we in the old days could move a lot faster than the actual campaigns because we would just fire things out. And then I feel like the campaigns kind of started to take notice of that, of us and people like us. And that's why they've sped up their merch release, kind of something you guys talked about earlier. Well, you kind of waved that as a red flag a couple of times. Uh, didn't you do a T-shirt that says something like this T-shirt was produced faster than the Iowa caucus results are processed? Yeah. So this, I'm going to really go hard in the paint to get Claire to put this in the Smithsonian collection, but we <laughs> put out a shirt the morning after the 2020 uh, caucuses that said, this shirt was designed and printed faster than the caucus results were released. And so you have, you know, all these reporters are hanging around Des Moines waiting for um, the caucus results to be announced, or maybe they just wanted to enjoy uh, Des Moines, Iowa weather in February of 2020. And it's like, you know what? Forget New Hampshire. I'm going to spend a couple extra days in Des Moines. And so we printed this shirt at our production facility in Des Moines and put it out on the racks so that you're just hanging around. And suddenly there is a physical T-shirt about the biggest story um, going on in politics. And we, you know, it was this interesting demarcation of kind of the beginning of the end for the Iowa Democratic caucuses anyway, as we know it. And so that was kind of it it's one of those like points where we kind of look at how the speed of product in relation to the events and then the product kind of becomes one of the events. And, and it's, it's an interesting world to be in. That's for sure. But you have to make some very quick calls and, and some of them might be not be right because they're in the moment. There was this day when there were three different altercations that happened within Congress in a 24 hour period. We, we actually covered this because we had Heather Cox Richardson on the show the next day. But one of them was uh, Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen uh, and Teamster Chief Sean O'Brien. And they were <laughs> they were really getting into it and just talking about having a fist fight. And I think it was Mullen who said, stand your butt up. And yep, stand you, your butt up. Yeah. Then you stand your butt up. Yeah. <laughs> the problem is, what's the life of that T-shirt if you make it? Not long. I mean, there's some of them, It's you never really know, but that's why it would be hard for us to do this if we didn't do all of our own production ourselves. So we can go from idea to physical shirt in about an hour because we do all of our own screen printing. We're at Unionized Shop in Des Moines. And it used to be in the early days, it was just me. And so the biggest advantage was that if I wanted to, I could just make six shirts. So we have a you know warehouse full of blank t-shirts and then we can just make a few of something. And then if it sells well, we can make more of something. So 
we can only really do what we do because we control our production, but the speed of it can be, you know, remarkably fast. If it's something we don't want to do, we tell people, obviously it's going to take a couple of weeks. Um, it's like, oh boy, this is really tough to pull off. It's going to be a few weeks. But when we, you know, really want to show up, we have to get there right away. You see what the story is and you immediately have to say, all right, well, how are we going to distill this down to something that can be printed onto a t-shirt? And the caucus shirt was obviously just one that was meant to be, you know, the shirt was the joke and it wasn't necessarily meant to be something that you're going to sell forever. But you really capture lightning in a bottle when you can take an event, distill it down to a certain slogan. And that slogan is even funny once you remove it from the event. And years later, you might have a shirt that's still selling and people can't even remember where it first came from. And that's kind of the tricky part about messaging, which is, you know, what all campaigns are going to deal with is how do you take a complex issue, distill it down into something that fits onto a T-shirt and that people want to give you money for? Yeah, we're kind of running out of time here, but I think that's worth talking about in connection with Biden. You've made this point that Biden's, uh, you know, he's a manager. He's the guy who gets the TPS reports in on time and all this kind of stuff, which is less exciting in terms of moving merch. You don't want to go out and buy the T-shirt or or anything else connected to the guy who gets his TPS reports done on time. Well, yeah, you. I think, as you mentioned before, the dark brand and stuff has done well for them, though that was even a play off of something that kind of came out of Trump world. Mm. When you look at both sides, you know, one of the disconnects is that most of the liberal merch that's selling is issue based. So it's going to be stuff for librarians, book bands, teachers, unions. And when you look at the Republican side, it's more personality based. It's all Trump stuff. And I think the Republicans can be a little frustrated because it's personality driven, not issue driven. And the Democrats are frustrated because it's, you know, issue driven, not personality driven. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. In the meantime, it just means we have to make more T-shirts about book bands, T-shirts, teachers, librarians and gender and less about um, Biden and Harris. Although we're still trying, we'll do anything that people will purchase. The good news is that everybody's frustrated. Mike Draper is the founder and owner of the (laughs) T-shirt maker Raygun. I'll be in touch about the filthy liberal uh, book hugger T-shirt for Lily Tyson. She also might want the Kelsey Swift 24, although she's I think she's going to want Swift Kelsey. So we'll talk about that as well. But thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening, too. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow.